0: Hey, are you tired of shopping your car and home insurance every single year? Well, somebody's got to do it. But that somebody doesn't have to be
1: you. At the Rhodes Group, we can get you up to 10 insurance quotes in less than 10 minutes. Visit us online today at Rhodes-Group.com.
2: Tonight in Arkansas, there's a mother tucking in her daughter and turning off the light. A business owner is burning the midnight oil. An at-home dinner date is plating up possibility.
3: Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of Welcome to Atlanta. We appreciate you guys making us your weekly destination to catch up with some of our favorite Atlanta and Georgia guests, both past and present. Let's not waste any time. Let's get to this week's edition of Welcome to Atlanta. I hear the love you have for the Braves and the game, but the way it was always described to me was nobody loved the game of baseball more than Bobby Cox. There's a reason he spent so much time at the ballpark. Well, man, it's not only the game, you know, that Bobby loved. Bobby loved the
0: people around the game. Bobby Bobby loved talking to the reporters. You know, Bobby, if you walked with Bobby, and there would be times on day games or or days where he would come over and pick me up and we would drive to the ballpark together, and he would get in the tunnel, I mean, in the tunnel at the old stadium, in the parking lot at the new stadium, and he would say hi to everybody. And he knew everybody by name, everybody the, the security people in the tunnel, he would he knew every one of them by name and he would stop and speak to them. They loved him because he took the time to know them, ask about them. And he did that with everybody. I mean, absolutely everybody. And um, that was, you know, somebody told me one time, if you want to be successful in a field, Find somebody who's the most successful in that field and do everything exactly the way that he does. Well, I thought, how much better can I do? But I couldn't even be Bobby. You know, I couldn't do that. That's not in my personality to, you know, be as kind and uh, respectful to to everybody that I see that Bobby Cox was. And I tried, and then there were times when we had tough games, I couldn't do it, And but Bobby did it. You know, Bobby would never hold grudges with players. If he got mad at you, he would be – the one thing that I never took from Bobby, I think, was that we would play games, and then if we lost a game and something happened, he would go in his office, and it would explode. (laughs) I mean, stuff was flying against the wall, and you could hear stuff. He'd be screaming and coffee mugs, and I walked in the next day, there was a a mug, a coffee cup uh, handle sticking out of the wall. he had fired it (laughs) to the wall. But the next day, he would come in just like nothing ever happened. And, uh, you know, he was just – the the experience of watching him in these situations was invaluable to me. We played a game one time in St. Louis, and we had a one-run lead in the ninth inning. They had runners at second and third and two outs, and Mike Stanton was pitching. And Stanton – was facing a left-hander. I mean, you're thinking to yourself, "Okay, this game's over." Guy hits a rollover ground ball to the first baseman. Right? I mean, like, this game's over. Well, I look up Stanton's late to the bag. So Stanton, the batter, beat Stanton to the bag. That's the tying run. Stanton understood that he was late to the bag and started feeling sorry for him. The winning run scored.
3: Mm, right? I remember
0: this. We all go. We go in that locker room. And Bobby is some kind of livid. I mean, he is in his office and in that office at the old stadium, it was just like, it didn't really have like a roof, you know, it had, it had just like walls up there. So you could hear everything going on. And he was, I mean, he was screaming and yelling and going nuts. And we were all sitting, you know, we sat down. I mean, we could hardly believe what happened to begin with, but after like five minutes of him erupting in there, he, door flew up, and he goes, Stanton, get in here. So we're like, oh, man, it's fixing to hit now. <laughs> so we're all sitting there kind of listening, right? Stanton walks in, slams the door behind him. So we're listening for like five minutes. We didn't we didn't hear nothing. And all of a sudden, you know, the door opens up, and Stanton walks out. So the next day, we're all sitting in the bullpen, and we had a tight group down there, right? So we were kind of laughing at it. At that time, like, what happened when you went in there? He goes, man, I was scared to death. He said, I went in there, and Bobby told me to sit down. And I sat down right across from his dust, right? And I'm sitting there. I've got my head hanged down, right? And I'm waiting for him to start to yell at me. And I'm waiting for 30 seconds, 45 seconds, a minute, a minute and a half, two minutes. And I look up, and Bobby's staring at me. I mean, daggers coming out of his eyes. He said, I kind of shook a little bit and put my head back down again and waited for a minute. He said, I waited two more minutes, and I looked up, and Bobby's staring at me again. And I said, I put my head back down again, and I keep thinking to myself, when's he going to yell at me? And I'm sitting here, and after about a minute, I looked up at him, and Bobby looked at me, and he goes, Mike, don't ever do that again. And Stanton goes, Bobby, trust me, that'll never happen again. He goes, okay, get out of here. But that was Bobby Cox. You know, that was Bobby Cox. He never held a grudge. He never, you know, situations, he made his point. uh, It wasn't going to happen again. And, uh, you know, the players respected him for it. You know, I would ask him, there were times players that would be hitting second, third, fourth, or fifth that would be really struggling. I mean, they'd be struggling for like a week or 10 days. and I mean, I got to the point where I'm like, Bobby, are you going to move him up and down the lineup? And he goes, let me tell you my philosophy on that. I said, okay. He said, when I've got a player, and he's sitting second, third, fourth, or fifth, he's generally one of my better players. And I said, yeah, and he's struggling. And I said, I will go to the point to where I think I need to move him. And he said, sometimes it's a week, sometimes it's ten days, sometimes it's two weeks. And he said, when I get to the point where I think I'm going to move him, I wait another week. And always within that week, they pull out of it and they're right back to who they were. So you don't disrupt their confidence, you don't disrupt who they are. It's everything stays, uh, you know, settled and. And everybody's, uh, you know, in the right frame of mind. It doesn't disrupt anything. You know, I used that philosophy so many times that it worked every time for me too. So, um, you know, the the lessons to be able to be with him, uh, you know, for all those years uh, was, uh, you know, again, set me up for 17 years of managing. And, you know, the first part of uh, understanding what it was like you know, because when I came in '91 and '90, the Braves had, you know, were in dead last place and drew 850,000 fans. They didn't even draw a million fans. Right. And then, yep. of course, in '91, here we go. We're in the World Series, right? But you could see that these young kids that I had in Greenville, um, you know, the Blazers of Justices and those kids, it generally takes them two and a half years. And I learned this two and a half years for them to get to the big leagues before. Uh, You know, they start to take off, especially talented kids. I remember Tommy Glavin losing his 17th game, a Hall of Famer crying in his locker. You know, 17 games he lost, uh, you know, at the big league level. But after two and a half years, these kids all of a sudden, boom, they grew together. And then they put together, what, 14 consecutive divisions? championships it was the same way in milwaukee after two and a half years our kids started to come on and we you know we were we were primed to be in the playoffs in kansas city it was two and a half years before that great group of kids got to where they could compete for a world championship do you think people have the the
3: patience though anymore ned like what what happened with the braves and and you hit it perfectly people don't want to remember when glavin and smoltz came up and struggled and young players found their way I mean, three or four years to give players time these days. I just don't know if teams Mm have that patience. Well, that's the problem. That's the trap
0: that you run into. If you're going to rebuild, you have to rebuild. And here, the the philosophy behind rebuilding, and 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 you can look at this right now and put this in context of where the Braves are. Context of where the Braves are right now. It's going to take two and a half years now. Managers will come in there, and this is where Snit has done such a fantastic job, right? Managers will come in, and especially on teams that are rebuilding and, and that are losing a lot of games. We've got to develop a winning attitude. Well, here's the problem with that. Players, when you sign a professional player, every single professional player that the has a winning attitude. Every one of them. The problem that they have is that not all of them are talented but they all have the same attitude to win. So when you are developing a, a, a team, hopefully to develop it into a, a championship caliber team, those two and a half years are crucial that you develop not a winning attitude, but a positive attitude, that you stay positive with these guys no matter what, because depending on their talent level, they're going to give you everything that they got. But some players just aren't talented enough to be successful and put together great years. Now, if you continue to pound them with winning attitude, winning attitude, they're going to press. And when they press, it makes it worse. It stifles their natural ability, and it's actually going to be worse than if you just understand, hey, go out every day, give us your best, whatever it is. If it's 0 for 4, okay. If it's 4 for 4, okay. Just look in the mirror when the day's over and look yourself in the eye and say to yourself, did I give my best effort today? And if you did, then you can take a shower, go home, and be ready to play the next day. Now, after two and a half years, it's, like I said, it's been my experience. These guys all of a sudden start to understand, hey, I've been through every situation. I've gotten to the point where I think I can win. Now it builds into where I know I can win. And they take off. That's where we were in 14. You know, we thought we could win until the playoffs started. Then we understood, okay, we're, we can win. And we, took, we, we lost the World Series by 90 feet. I mean, 90 feet. And then, of course, the next year we had a great year and won the World Championship in 15. Now, you take that in context of where the Braves are right now. They have gotten uh, those two and a half years or those two years where those young players have come together you have young pitching that's extremely talented. You've got young position players that are extremely talented, and they took it within one game of the World Series last year. Trust me, when they come to spring training this year, they know that they, can, that they can go to the World Series and win it. They're ready to go. This is why this year is going to be so exciting, I think, for every Braves fan is that they're at a point in their organizational development where they are ready to compete for a World Championship And I, for one, am extremely excited to see how they do.
3: Yes, we're brought to you by the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. It's kind of my go-to. I'm a little bit lucky. I live in Woodstock, so I'm right around the corner to downtown Woodstock on Main Street to see the Daily Draft, which I've told you many times, it's the ultimate sports bar experience, not your father's sports bar. You're talking wall-to-wall flat screens, self-serve taps, craft bar, chef-inspired menu. And with sizzling plays ahead, if you're planning on tailgating both this summer or this fall, maybe you're going to MBS or Athens or on the flats, or you're hosting a game night at your home, check out the Daily Draft's newest menu edition, the Tailgate Box. Yes, you can enjoy their wings, boneless wings, a couple of sides, a bag of popcorn, and of course, their homemade jumbo cookies. Now, these are pre-order only. You can go to the uh, thedailydraft.net or give them a call at the Daily Draft to get the pre-orders in. If you're also looking for a new place to grab lunch during the week or even order on Uber Eats, check out The Daily Draft. They have a great lunch lineup for only 11 bucks Monday through Friday from 11.30 till 3.30. Again, go to thedailydraft.net or you can check them out on Facebook or Instagram. The Daily Draft, a unique experience from the moment you walk through the door, a walk-up window to order drinks from the sidewalk, craft beer bar, pool tables, darts, wall-to-wall flat screens. You won't miss a single second of the game. Go check them out today at The Daily Draft. For uh, Boog Shambi. I know when your time here and just your time around baseball, you cross paths with a lot of legendary figures, and there's no more legendary figure than what Atlanta lost with Hank Aaron. Boog, do you have any memories, interactions, just uh, remembrances of crossing paths with him?
4: Well, so, um, you know, my, my first year was uh, 1997. Um, and. You know, you're you're talking about a guy who's you know one of the the historic figures in baseball. And, and my first year as a broadcaster with the Marlins, and I got to interview him. Um, he came to Pro Player Stadium, and yeah, it was just it was I was nervous, you know, like it was it it just you felt like you were in just. And I got a chance to be around him a, a handful of more times, but I. It was just different. You know, I've been around a lot of guys, and there just aren't too many guys that had that type of presence and just, you know, like a quiet dignity to him. But, you know, all that he accomplished, the baseball nerd in me would say to you, I I know this sounds incredible, but we fixate on the home runs and who's the all-time. I think he was an underrated player. But I think that when you when you really break it down, I don't know that because he played, you know, in and around the same time as Willie Mays, I think that he gets overshadowed a little bit, but people don't realize that, yeah, he wasn't just a power hitter. He could run, he could defend, um, and, you know, he hit for a great average as well. You know, you took away his, his home runs. He'd still have 3,000 hits, but... I I just can remember interviewing him and being and being intimidated, but maybe intimidated isn't the right being excited to be in the company of someone that had that level of gravitas.
3: That's a great way to say it. But then you meet him and you realize he is the most humble, gracious, like giving person who and boo, you've been around a lot of folks like I have that for whatever reason, they don't choose to be that way. But he was every bit of, of those descriptions.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. He's just a, a special, a special guy and, and, you know, humble to a point where you, you took note of it. Um, yeah. It, it was, uh, I, I it was a while since I, I hadn't seen him in, in, in quite some time, but I, you know, just in just little interactions with him. I remember being down on the field before one of the world series games and chatting with Ian and, John Carlos Stanton um, in San Francisco. I think it was the Tigers World Series, so that would have been, what, 2012? Uh, yeah, 2012. Um, so, yeah, it's just you're, you're, you're talking about a, a special man and um, a guy who occupies a really special place in history.
3: Who would say it. Uh, congratulations, first and foremost, on the move to the Cubs. Without getting into your personal business, how does this come about, this move?
4: Oh man. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it was interesting. I, I think the part that's, that's funny is I really like, you know, I'm still going to do stuff for ESPN, but it's changing. So I, I really liked my gig at ESPN. I think what's interesting is Len Casper is a longtime friend. We were together um, in South Florida. He was the TV guy. I was the radio guy when he left to take the Cubs job. I was offered the TV job and turned it down and went and worked and did TV games for ESPN. And then after two years at ESPN, that's when I came to Atlanta and did the Braves for three years. But so Len and I had a close friendship. He had told me that he was thinking about doing this. And, you know, for some people they can get it and some people don't. But, you know, he's never called a playoff game. You know, I mean, I've been calling playoff games on the radio since 2005, and it's really cool. And, you know, most people don't realize that if you're the TV local TV broadcaster in the NBA, in the NHL, in Major League Baseball, the local TV broadcaster, I think the NBA, they might, at least for a time, they let you carry over. But for the most part, you do local TV. When the playoffs come, you watch. You're done. And, look, he had lived through one of the great experiences – you know, in baseball over the last 50 years with the Cubs breaking their curse. So that was not going to happen again, obviously. And he was just looking for something new. And a kid that grew up in Michigan, listening to Ernie Harwell, wasn't going to have to move, create the job that he wanted to create. He loved his Cubs job. Anyway, as I talked him through it, I never actually thought about, well, hmm, is this something that would appeal to me? And then they called, and I think that there were a lot of elements to it. I never, as weird as it may sound, I never really sat with what would it be like to be the voice of the Cubs. As close as he and I were, it was like always his job, so i just be doing games at Wrigley Field like the way I did as a national guy, not what would it be like if I was the Cubs guy. And then – when I really started to take it in, it just, it appealed to me. I didn't want to do 150, and they're letting me do, you know, 125-ish. And it all just kind of came together. And, and then you really sit with, you know, the broadcasting lineage and beyond a city that, you know, I think that the Chicago Cubs, if you take the four major sports, I think, you know, it's it's one of the, the more significant you know, franchises in terms of just historical appeal um, in any of the four major sports. So I I just, it's, uh, it was a process. It wasn't something that I was eyeing. It just kind of came upon me. And then when I really sat down to think about it, it it just made sense.
3: Well, let's go back for a minute because um, what I love about number one, listening to you do games is I know you're doing games, but I know you could do other things. I used to listen to you do sports talk radio. In South Florida. So you, you've done yeah. the talk show thing, the game thing. Let me ask you about the radio part. Because I know that's yep. got some history where the nickname came from, right? Tell the listener how Boog came about.
4: I was hired in 1993. My buddy Bob was shoes who does college basketball, and he also does college football for ESPN, and he is the voice on the radio of the New York Jets. Um he helped get me a job at WQAM in Miami, which at the time was the flagship station for the Marlins and the Panthers. And eventually became the flagship station as well for the Dolphins. And I went down there in 1993. I was training as a board op. And the guy on the morning show was Dave Lamont. He was from the DC area. He's a big Orioles fan, you know, and I was just a big guy with red hair. And he mm-hmm. said, you kind of look like Boog Powell. And I had already, you know, I was hired as you know as a hourly you know worker just uh trying to work as much as i could and climb and get on the air and do updates but i was training to board up the morning show and he said you look like boog powell the next day took over john shambi on my mailbox it said boog powell and it just stayed and and it yeah everybody everybody there called me boog so for the most part, anybody that's met me after 23 calls me Boog, and then you know friends from high school and college are more likely to call me from by my last name, and then some of the girls from grade school still call me Jonathan. There you go. <laughs> that's <laughs> the truth.
3: Yeah. 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 Listen, I grew up. My mother and father would like they wouldn't even call me Matt. It would be I was 12 years old. My whole life it would be Matthew. So I get the Jonathan thing. Um, right. Did you enjoy doing sports talk radio? I did I did until i didn't I would
4: say you know i think it, it got it got uh i mean the the whole landscape has changed i mean I feel like I did it you know when I was doing it was like the when it was just exploding um across the country you know in the in the you know the in the nineties when it really started to take off and and every city that didn't have a sports car. Station, got a sports talk station. Um, I, it, look, here's the thing I would say. It was immensely valuable for thinking on my feet. You know, I came at it from a perspective of, like, being in New York. Um, you know, they always have calls at FAN. You, know, you sit there and do a show at 2 in the morning and you get a full board. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can just give out the phone numbers. <laughs> it's not like that in South Florida, man. You're doing a solo show you got to work. Like, you're going to say something and have them take a side and and deliver something to get people to call in. And I think more than anything, I like the the mental exercise of, you know, jousting with callers. And I think even today, you know, it's funny. It's where, I mean, you can relate to this, where, you know, TV people in spots – you know, would ask you to vamp, meaning fill time. And just your, for, you know, on Sports Talk Radio, your ability to, to fill a minute with just stuff is, you know, is one of the skill sets that you learn. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and so yep. it helped me so much to just be able to, you know, really easily, I mean, eventually it got easy, but just be able to sort of tread water and, um, and transition and fill space. So it was, yeah, it was fun. I think I also, I think it also was the starting point for sports talk radio is where I learned, I know this sounds funny, but that's yeah, where I learned how to do me, you know, where I learned to be comfortable to close the gap between what's the guy that's on the air, like versus the guy that's off the air and trying to make it as close to the same person as possible. So, it was, yeah, it was a a really valuable thing for my development just as a broadcaster. Um, I got worn out on it, you know. It, it, it's I got worn out on it at times, but it uh, it's still, yeah, I I I wouldn't change it for a, a second. Well, I, well, let me I, ask you this because my time doing
3: it, you said something I think was intriguing because one of the reasons I love listening to you call games and I've always enjoyed it is there is an element of, like, your guard is down. And I think what we've learned, if you do this long enough, is what you just said, you've got to be you. But what comes with that is, I mean, there's corporations and there's management types. Did anybody in a game setting say, not enough baseball, not enough serious? Because you still do the baseball stuff with personality. Has that ever been an issue with anybody?
4: It's funny. I've gotten asked that question, um, you know, from time to time, working for the Braves or the Marlins. And I swear to you, I have never in my life had anyone from a team say, don't do that again, or we're unhappy with something along. Like I I think that there's a perception that that takes place more than it actually does is what I, is my, is is my two cents opinion. I mean, I don't, you know, I can't, speak for every broadcaster broadcasting for every team but you know my short answer is no it's just that that was not that was not a part of my reality
3: folks let me ask you a question when it comes to dealing with experts don't you know they've got your best interest in mind think about somebody in the medical profession as opposed to you diagnosing yourself you would never do that when, when it comes to insurance I would think, yeah, you can go shop your own rates, but don't you want the professionals to do it for you, the experts? Well, I'm talking about the Rhodes Group. My friend Clayton Rhodes and the great folks at the Rhodes Group, they did that for me, and you should know, you should be shopping your rates or having pros do it each and every year because the rates change so much. When I'm talking about home or car insurance, you could be saving a bundle if you have professionals like the Rhodes Group shopping for you. They did just that, and they saved me a couple of thousand dollars a year with home and car insurance combined. You can be the next to save a bunch of money with the Rhodes Group. I want you to go to their website. It's roads groupcom It's spelled R-H-O-A-D-S-Group.com. Or follow me on Real Matt on Twitter. You'll see the link. You can click over and have them give you 10 quotes in 10 minutes at the Rhodes Group. Locally owned, a great bunch of folks who are professionals when it comes to finding you the best rates. Go to roads groupcom have them shop your rates They'll give you 10 quotes in 10 minutes at the Rhodes Group.
5: minimum balance
2: required.
0: Hi, I'm Mark Beckham with Atlanta Ramjack. We specialize in only foundation repair. What is foundation repair? Foundation sink or settle. These issues need to be addressed. It only becomes more costly the longer you put it off. What is the biggest cause of foundation problem? Either poor construction... Inferior site preparation or weather. Drought causes cracks in your foundations. If you see any signs of foundation issues, please contact us at atlantaramjack.com.
3: Well, I wanted to ask you about Chicago in a second, but you just brought up an interesting point that during the pandemic, it changed everything about how media Mm -hmm. was covering sports access. And Kelly, there's a lot of us in the business who think that access might never come back the way it once did because players Mm -hmm. and coaches and managers, I mean, they don't mind getting done with their media access with a quick zoom call or only a couple of guys post game having to do anything what is your mm-hmm. take on it do you think we get back to pre pandemic like media access
1: that's a really great question and i'm equally as concerned i i'm not sure what it looks like i'm not sure what the the future holds i really hope so because this is this is tough and there is just i go into every baseball game right now and i sit down and talk to my producer gretchen caney and i just think the content i'd be able to get you on a normal basis what i could step into a locker room and talk to five six guys before game versus more than not we're not getting players before games it's like we'll get a guy after the game usually that night's starter and then you know brian snicker and so the ability to do reports when you're not getting to talk to those guys is, is tough. And so I know for, for what we all do, if they can't figure out a way to get us more access, um not I, I'm not, I don't know if it could possibly look like what we're seeing right now during BP, where it's like you basically have to grab a guy when he's done taking batting practice or, For instance, maybe with NBA, it's shoot around and you're grabbing a guy right after shoot around or two guys or three guys and you're trying to get your content there. Like maybe that's what it looks like versus, hey, we're opening up the locker room for an hour Um, because I'm with you. It's going to be really hard for them to say, well, hey, for two years now, you guys have done your jobs and you've done it pretty well. You've managed. You've managed with the parameters we've given you. So we don't need to go back to giving you an hour and a half in the clubhouse before a game, or we don't need to go back to giving you these 30 minutes before the game and after the game in NBA or whatever it may be. Um, You you can do that in a shorter amount of time because, Hey, you, you didn't have any of it and you, you made it work for two years. So I'm with you. I'm I'm as concerned as anyone else as to what this looks like moving forward, but boy, I'm praying that, that it goes back to what it, Used to be in some capacity. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. So, yeah, I, even if that's a little scaled back, I understand. Um, but I really hope it's not gone as we know it was.
3: So you mentioned your time in Chicago. I wanted to circle back there for a second. Uh, you're mm-hmm. at, in Chicago at a time, right, when they're you know putting together a championship team, and it's Joe Madden and our old friend Jason Hayward and a bunch of good players. That's a great gig, right? And I'm not getting into your wallet, so I don't know, you know, what major league of Chicago to come to Atlanta, but like great city, you're close to your hometown. What was the Atlanta pull from that great job covering the Cubs in that great city?
1: Yeah, it was. It, it, was, it was fantastic. And actually when I first arrived there, it was during the three and six years that the Blackhawks won those championships as well. And, um... I can remember getting to the city and being like, "Woof, I'm going to have to really brush up on my hockey because <laughs> that's not been one I've had to cover a whole lot of. And it's funny because, again, when I got to Chicago, the deal was uh, they brought me in there to do Blackhawks. Um, they needed a, a rink reporter for that. and I, And the Cubs wasn't really, at the time, on the radar. I mean, I, of course, wanted it, but that's not the opening they had, and so kind of took took the blackhawks gig and then <clears throat> i kid you not this is what happens and i think you'll love this story um having just been in san diego for one year doing the padres of all things that was where i kind of got my feet wet with baseball because up to that point i'd done nothing but the nba and covering the nba and covering mlb the night and day right like little did i know it seems very obvious that you want to go up and talk to the starter on the day he starts well <laughs> that's not how it works everybody just so you know the day a guy starts is not the day you get to talk to him. You get yeah. to talk to him the day before or two days before, and really, I don't know that you know. Just your normal fan knows that. Like it, it, that's something I had to learn when I when I stepped into a clubhouse of so San Diego's where I kind of got my feet wet with baseball and, and learning more about how you how you would work a clubhouse and get the best um, content in that regard, in comparison to the NBA. And on that staff. Bud Black was managing the team. Rick Renteria was the first base coach. And Dave Roberts, now managing the Dodgers, was the bench coach. So we had a terrific coaching staff. And Bud Black is one of the best in the game. I mean, he is just a riot. He's so much fun to work with. But anyway, I go off to Chicago then the next year. And lo and behold, they hire Rick Renteria as the manager when i'm there about a month after being there and i was in the studios the way the way this worked or at least the way at the time comcast sports network was was built was we were doing these 6 p.m 30 minute shows as well as like 10 p.m and a midnight live show all kind of sports center-esque if if you will where 30 minutes and you cover all five teams um, in the city with highlights and and that sort of thing and at the time I was in there and this news broke, I went straight into the news director at the time and said, Hey, I, I know Rick Rentria, I have his number, I can call him, I'll get the phoner, or we'll get him, you know, on camera as quick as we can. And that's what I did. And the second I was able to kind of pull that off and they were aware that I knew the next Cubs manager at the time, that was my beat from there out. So, again, being in the right place at the right time just came together, and so I covered the Cubs starting that next year with Rick Renteria's first year. Um, and, and you started to see them getting a little better, but it was still a ways out. They Next year, Joe Madden becomes available. They bring in John Lester. And then that was the turn, really, for them that started them on this crazy run. And by 2016, that was the most unbelievable year of any sport I've ever covered, just because of the magnitude of what that meant to the city and 108 years. And <clears throat> I, I remember spring training them being able to re-sign Dexter Fowler and the way he walked into camp oh, four days after everyone reported and just the, the look on his face and everybody and the, the puffed-out chest. And I was like, this group's going to be special. You just – you feel it. Even that early, you know you can feel it. Um, and then what they were able to do and accomplish that year um, was was really incredible. Game seven in Cleveland, I don't know that, that I've ever been through um, the drama of a game like that. And a rain delay where I'm standing on the top of the steps, getting ready to run out onto the field and do these interviews, and then <laughs> – <laughs> then we have to wait a little longer. And I just was like, this is unbelievable. I'm unbelievable. And the the, the uh, Aroldis Chapman home run and being back behind the stage where we were as reporters, all of us, right? Um, you see sometimes these things. And, I mean, I saw Aroldis Chapman. I saw him kind of sort of sink down into this corner and watch David Ross go over and be like, uh-uh that we're going to need you. Like you got to get up, you got to get into this room. Jason Hayward's delivering the speech, the raw, the raw speech that essentially turned things around. That's, you know, the rain delay speech that everybody talks about led by Jason, who was just, by the way, absolutely fantastic to deal with day in and day out. And oh, yeah. totally yep. revered in that clubhouse, he is just nothing but class. And, um, yeah, just a privilege honestly to to be around him and cover him day in and day out. But that was that was an unbelievable run. And then I don't even think I understood what it meant exactly until that parade. And I happened to be on the bus that was with Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo. Jason Hayward and Dexter Fowler. Those are the four players that I was on the bus with um, doing live reports as we rolled down, you know, the Mag Mile and uh, through Wrigley. And it was just to see the waves and waves of people. Matt, I'm telling you, like, you couldn't see where, like, the heads began and where they ended. It looked like they went right into the, the lake. I mean, that's that's how far and wide people were lined up for this. That I, no, that,
3: I mean, that, that's a generational event yeah. of families who are waiting their whole lives to witness it no that must have been I can't that that, like there's goosebumps when you hear about it
1: it is yeah and and I still telling it, it that's how that's how I felt and and just to be a part of that fabric I guess like I mean you know I you know how it is we're not we're certainly not part of these teams but when you cover them night in and night out and you're part of the broadcast that goes home to people every night they they see you as as Part of that moment. They, they feel like you're, you sh- shared that moment with them. And to me, that's something that I'll always cherish because yeah, this, I got this. to be part of that, that just miraculous moment for so many um, and, and share it with them. And that's yeah. pretty special.
3: Yes, we're brought to you by the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. It's kind of my go-to. I'm a little bit lucky. I live in Woodstock, so I'm right around the corner to downtown Woodstock on Main Street to see the Daily Draft, which I've told you many times, it's the ultimate sports bar experience, not your father's sports bar. You're talking wall-to-wall flat screens, self-serve taps, craft bar, chef-inspired menu. And with sizzling plays ahead, if you're planning on tailgating both this summer or this fall, maybe you're going to MBS or Athens or on the flats, or you're hosting a game night at your home, check out the Daily Draft's newest menu edition, the Tailgate Box. Yes, you can enjoy their wings, boneless wings, a couple of sides, a bag of popcorn, and of course, their homemade jumbo cookies. Now, these are pre-order only. You can go to the uh, thedailydraft.net or give them a call at the Daily Draft to get the pre-orders in. If you're also looking for a new place to grab lunch during the week, or even order on Uber Eats, check out the Daily Draft. They have A great lunch lineup for only 11 bucks Monday through Friday from 11.30 till 3.30. Again, go to thedailydraft.net, or you can check them out on Facebook or Instagram. The Daily Draft, a unique experience from the moment you walk through the door, a walk-up window to order drinks from the sidewalk, craft beer bar, pool tables, darts, wall-to-wall flat screens. You won't miss a single second of the game. Go check them out today at The Daily Draft. Guys, thanks again for joining us. We appreciate it very much. Thanks to Brian Murphy for producing the podcast. And thanks to you guys for making us your weekly destination. We'll talk to you next week on Welcome to Madland. Welcome
1: to Atlanta where the players play. And we ride on them things like every day. Big beats, hit street seat gangsters roaming. And parties don't stop till 8 in
0: the morning. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play. And we ride on them things like every day.
4: Big beats, hit street seat gangsters roaming. Uh-huh. And parties don't stop till 8 in the morning.